Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. If you're a first timer, we welcome you to the party. Robert alongside my co-host, Stephen Kerr, and we got a bunch to get to. Later on, we got cool Texans facts, stats, and thoughts. The Rockets made an under-the-radar move, and something really bizarre happened at U of H this week, which, you know, could change college football. So we'll we'll talk about that. But first, the Astros became the first team in Major League Baseball history to win three different divisions. Stephen, did you realize they've won the AL West, the NL West, and the NL Central, and they're the first to do that. I had totally forgotten about that. You know, I was when I first started following the Astros, they were in the NL West, and then of course, you know, with expansion and division divisions changing, I, I always forget that they did go to the NL Central, and then of course, when they went to the American League in 2013, they went to the AL West. So. You know, the, the Astros just, it, it keeps getting historic almost every day. And, of course, if if they win the Cy Young Award, the MVP, and Rookie of the Year, you know, that, that would be another historic milestone. It's going to be kind of hard to do, though, especially with the MVP thing. But, yeah, the Astros, they just keep making history. And I'll tell you what, it sure beats a lot of, several years ago, other things in the news when they were, so downtrodden, everybody was, they were making news all right, but everybody was laughing at them. So it's nice to hear that they're making history almost daily for a change. Yeah, I think most everybody knows at this point, Altuve, Bregman, Springer, Yuli all have 30 home runs, which is the first time in Astros history. Verlander and Cole probably both end up with 300 strikeouts if Verlander makes his last start. And then they finished one and two in the Cy Young award uh, voting. And then Jordan should win rookie of the year. Bregman, you know, he might not win MVP, but he's still going to be top three at the worst. The most interesting thing that I, though, that I've seen is according to fan Steven, the Astros have a 33.8% chance of winning the world series. Now that might not seem that weird, but that is statistically significantly better than any team going into the playoffs in the last five years. Yeah, when you think about it, 33% doesn't sound like much. But when you consider the teams that are in it and, and what you have to go through to do it, that's actually, yeah, that's I had not seen that particular stat. But uh, that's pretty darn impressive. All right, now to the bad news. Uh, right before we started, I saw Correa was scratched from tonight's game. We're recording this Tuesday. It's tightness in his lower back. A.J. Hinch says he isn't concerned. But my question, Stephen, how much of a difference would it make for the Astros' championship chances if Correa misses the postseason? I mean, does it go down 5%, 10%, 20%? Well, that's a good question. I mean, he has been out so much lately. I I would almost say, you know, maybe 5%. I I just feel... You know, he hasn't been in there, but when he has been in there, he has contributed. You know, it's not like he's going 0 for 20 when they put him back in the lineup and he's making errors defensively. I mean, he's contributing just as much defensively as offensively. But the problem is he's been in and out of the lineup so much lately and the Astros are still winning. Now, obviously, the postseason's a whole different story. You want your best players in there as often as possible. So... This, this was the thing that worried me is when Carlos Correa does come back, how long is he going to be able to hang in there day after day after day? They've even tried to rest him. 
And the Astros had an off day on Monday, so that helped. They, they haven't tried to play him a whole game, but he just barely got back in. And now they've scratched him again. I saw Brian McTaggart uh, tweet that out before Tuesday's game. So, yeah, it is a concern. But honestly, the Astros have continued to win. And even when Carlos Correa is not in there. But obviously, if I had my druthers, I'd rather have him back in there. Yeah, the continue to win part. I mean, they're not playing playoff teams every game. I mean, they're not playing playoff teams much. When they have played a playoff team, the A's, they lost three or four. So, yeah, it, it's it's going to be different when the playoffs come around to have a led Miss Diaz, I would assume, play instead of Correa. And the biggest difference, this is where it gets really bad for the Astros because I don't think their chances go down more than 5% or something like that. But there, there are going to be moments in the postseason where Correa's defense, that gun that he's got at shortstop, his height and length to catch balls that are over Bregman's head or just out of Bregman's reach playing shortstop, that would if that happens, then, then that's a concern. I want him back in for defense even more so than offense. It seems like you know, the Astros are still six strong guys deep, six all-star players deep with their lineup. It, it should make a difference that there's seven all-stars instead of six. And you still got a Josh Reddick that's been playing well. But Correa's defense and what that does to your entire defense, because Bregman is, you know, he's not the best third baseman defensively, but he's light years better than if you had a lead Miss Diaz over there. And he's really good at third base, whereas he's just a guy at shortstop, I kind of think. It, it's going to especially show itself, Robert, in the close games. where you That one play that Bregman just barely he leaps and the ball goes barely out of his reach for a base hit that might tie the score or put a runner in scoring position or put a leadoff man on in the eighth or ninth inning. The defense is really going to show up in the close games. That's where you're going to really miss Carlos Correa's defense if he's not in there just like when they put Jake Marisnik in late in the games for center field for defensive purposes. It, it, you know, the defense really starts to show in a game that's close, one play can make the difference between winning and losing. Exactly. And uh, the wild card race, uh, you know, I was looking at that. It's still wide open between the A's, the Rays, and the Indians. So there's a good chance the Astros, I thought this was interesting, Stephen, will either face Marwin Gonzalez, Mike Fires, or Charlie Morton. And all of them were critical in their uh, championship run. Even Fires, who even, you know, he didn't play in the playoffs, but he helped keep the pitching staff together with all the injuries in 2017. Because people might forget, you know, he had a bunch of good starts in June and July when Morton, Keuchel, Peacock, McHugh, and McCullers all missed time. You know, they all had uh, missed starts, uh, especially in that, you know, kind of June-July region where where he just, he, he, he came out and he, Pitched uh, six, seven innings and w was giving them quality starts. It's been amazing just to look around the major leagues and see all the former Astros who are making some kind of contribution. Yeah, Marwin Gonzalez, Charlie Morton, he's he's done well with uh, the Rays. And gosh, we could just go up and down the list, uh, both in the American League and the National League of former Astros that are making an impact. Yeah, and don't you know that... The more of them that are out there, and when the postseason gets here, there's a chance that they're going to be facing some of these guys that helped them win the World Series in 2017. So that in itself is going to be an interesting storyline when the postseason gets here, depending on who they end up playing. All right, I got to get to Wade Miley, unfortunately. Uh, it, but this is my take on Wade Miley. I'm, I'm going to flip it around, and I think he's been 
kind of playing chess while everybody else is playing checkers. He He's keeping his pitch count low in September. His arm is rested for October. He's also not showing any of his good stuff. He's keeping that on the back burner. He doesn't like the potential matchup in the first round if they get home field advantage. So I think he's tanking it a little bit. So, you know, setting up that Yankees upset in the other bracket that he thinks is going to work out. And it's going to ease the road for the Astros to the World Series. Isn't that right, Stephen? That, that makes sense, right? Yeah, Hollywood might really love you, Robert. I think you have something there. You should uh, write the script or uh, I know RG, I think he's a script writer. So maybe you could uh, send that to him and get it there in a hurry. <laughs> hey, I like the way you spend things, buddy. I like the way you spend things. But um, I don't think you're going to convince A.J. Hinch of that. I certainly don't think you're going to convince Miley of that. And, well, are you going to convince Jeff Luno and A.J. Hinch to put him on the roster? Well, here's the thing, Robert, is even if Miley really does well in his final start of the season, because he's going to have one more shot, do you trust putting him on the roster just because he has a great performance I mean, I'm, in the game? I'm against, asking. I'm asking. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I just don't think I could. I mean, just in the month of September alone... He has a 22.09 ERA. That's just in September. In his last seven starts, he's got a 9.14 ERA. He apparently is not tipping his pitches. He's gone back and looked at the video. He doesn't know what's wrong. He doesn't appear to be injured. So would one start, if he does really, really well, would they say, okay, Wade Miley's back? I don't think so. I don't know that you can trust it because in the game against Kansas City, yeah, he had that shaky first inning. But then he came back strong and finished the rest of the game with a great outing. So I'm wondering if it's a little bit too late for Miley to get it back together. Who would you start if it's not Miley? That's such a hard question. You know, it, it could be, just depending on how the series go, that you go with your three starters. And then you have your bullpen, like, say, a Peacock, if he can be effective uh, and pitch multiple innings. Someone like a Brian Abreu or Jose Urquidy, you know, they're they're kind of on the outside looking in, but they may be coming into the mix just because Miley has been so ineffective. I don't think they're going to go with just three starters. Uh, there's a lot of history to show that, you know, if you're just doing a three-man rotation in the playoffs, that doesn't work. Uh, guys wear down. You know, you're 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 planning on a World Series run. So you're putting a lot of pressure on guys on, on short rest. You know, it's got to be Urquidy. I, I, I don't know of anybody else that makes a whole lot of sense. Peacock doesn't have the arm strength. McHugh, he's gone. So, yeah, McHugh's done. So. so, I mean, you have you none of the veteran guys really make a whole lot of sense, and you're not going to have bullpen games. And Urquidy's the only one that's been in, getting any kind of consistent starts, unless you want to go with Fromber. And no, no thanks. No, I certainly hope that we're not going to throw Framber Valdez in there. Yeah, if they're going to go with a fourth starter, I would have to say it, it's Urquidy. You know, there's been talk that maybe they should uh, start limiting his innings, you know, because of the surgery he had last year, but they don't seem to be inclined to do that. Jeff Luno has even come out and said, it's every man on deck at this point. And you almost have to, because with all the injuries and then the effectiveness of Wade Miley, you know, and then you have to hope Zach Grinke gets it completely together and he doesn't get into inconsistencies or the Astros are really going to be in trouble. I don't know about in trouble. I mean, you still got Verlander and Cole. I mean, nobody else has got that. Uh, they are by far the best one-two in the playoffs. But Granke can't go out there and give you two and three innings because then, you know, if you're pitching Wade Miley or Keeney, you know, you might be in trouble the game after that. 
yeah, your bullpen's going to be taxed, but you still can win a series with just Verlander and Cole. It's possible. Well, especially in a best of five, I, I think you definitely could go with two, three starters. It's when you get into the seven game series and if they go the full seven games and your bullpen is stretched out and one of your starters or two of your starters becomes ineffective, I think in the long run, that's that's where it's going to hurt a team like the Astros. But with their offense, if they're able to keep up, then they still have a chance, it, it, even more of a chance than really any other team. One other guy I want to talk about that, you know, I'm concerned about this guy. I feel like the whole year, everybody just thought Josh James – Oh, he's got the 100-mile-an-hour fastball. We saw the potential last year. Uh, he's going to have it figured out. And you look through him with the, you know, you look at him through the eyes of his arm and his potential. But it, it just hasn't happened. I mean, it's been all year long. He's been inconsistent. He didn't have the arm problems. He's come back. It's been, eh, you know, not, nothing great. Uh, you know, he can have the best stuff in the world, but he's not pitched well enough this year for me to trust him in the playoffs. The Astros, Stephen, I think they've got no choice with the Swiss cheese bullpen, you know, and, and the options outside of, you know, pr- probably Will Harris and Presley and Joe Smith that are good, but the rest of the options, you got to put Josh James on the roster, but he's not a guy that I would make a top option in any high leverage situations. Is that fair? Yeah, I'd have to say that's fair. And, you know, between the ineffectiveness and uh, the the injury problems, and they even changed his delivery uh, in his last stint that he was out. And I I understand the reasoning for it. But, you know, that's something that it it takes a little while to get used to. And they've had to throw him back in toward the end of the season with the new delivery. Yeah, he just hasn't pitched the the way that the Josh James of last year pitched with that electricity that he had before. But, again— with all the ineffectiveness going on in the bullpen and the injuries, you just, what else do you do? Do you put a, a Brian Abreu in there because he's pitched well lately? Or do you go with somebody like Josh James, who at least has postseason experience from last year? Right. And I, the, the number one options are obviously Osuna, Presley. You know, he looked good this weekend. Will Harris, Joe Smith. Both of those guys have pitched really well recently and Will Harris all year. At that point, it's okay. Who's the, who are the next options? Who do you like next? And I would put Brad Peacock just because he's a veteran ahead yeah. of Josh James at this point. I would too. It's it's long relief and middle relief. Those that's kind of where you have to really start to worry of who's going to go where. And absolutely, if Peacock can continue to be effective, he's your guy. He's at least your lead guy, and then all the others kind of fall in behind him. What else are you thinking with the, the the playoffs coming up? Was there anything else that you had uh, just as a – which direction do you want to go in with the Astros? Well, I know that, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about Brian Abreu or Jose Urquidy, you know, being the sleeper of the postseason roster. And uh, they both pitched well. And, and, of course, with Correa's injury – or well, we don't know that he's injured, but he is out again. You know, that changes the landscape as far as who gets the final positions. If Correa's not going to be able to go – then are we going to see somebody like an Abraham Toro who probably wouldn't have made the postseason roster, somebody like that? So Correa's situation can also change the postseason roster according to uh, the position players. Who yeah, no, Toro's the guy. I mean, he would be the obvious guy that's going to make the postseason roster. Diaz would get the start, but Toro, you know, he, he gives you some options uh, if you start pinch hitting guys during the during the postseason. But... 
I think somehow Correa, you know, it, it's going to be one of these things that's nagging. I, I just think he's going to figure out a way to be out there like he was last year. It's just, I don't know if he's the 100% Correa that we we saw, you know, 2017. Well, that's the big thing. But of course, you know, some people might say uh, 70% Correa is probably better than a 90% Toro or, you know, somebody else like that. So, yeah, it's just going to, they're, they're just going to have to buy their time and, and see what happens and obviously hold their breath every game he plays in the postseason, hoping that uh, he can just make it through. Yeah, we'll, we'll probably preview this uh, first Astro, definitely preview the first Astros series before it hits. Uh, you're going to have wild card games early next week, and we got to preview that series, and we're going to find out maybe who they play. Uh, that would help us to, to do the preview as well. But let's get to some Texans because uh, interesting stuff right off the bat that I've got on the Texans. You know, we, we've been talking about Stephen Whitney Merciless, and, you know, he's just been extraordinary so far this year. Jadavian Clowney threw three games with the Seahawks versus Whitney Merciless threw three games. How about these stats? Clowney, five tackles. Merciless, 14 tackles. Clowney, one quarterback hit. Merciless, five quarterback hits. Clowney, one sack. Merciless, four sacks. Clowney, one tackle for loss. Merciless, three tackles for loss. Merciless also with three forced fumbles and one interception. But, Stephen, it's also important to note, Merciless has 72 more snaps than Clowney so far. The Seahawks are using Clowney in about 64% of their snaps, while Merciless is averaging 94% for the Texans. Yeah, that is an interesting comparison, especially from the snap standpoint. I mean, I know it takes a little time for defensive players to get acclimated to a system, but really after three games, you would think that Clowney would be in there more. I mean, it almost seems, you know, last year, Whitney Merciless was playing out of position. He was apparently playing hurt. And this year, he has just come back, and, and he has been the pleasant surprise that we hoped he would be with the gap that was left by Clowney. That was what we kept talking about. Are people like Whitney Merciless and uh, Reader and, you know, some of these other guys stepping up, especially if uh, J.J. Watt's going to be double and triple team. But even J.J. found a way to get in the action in uh, the Texans' last game against the Chargers. So I I just, you know, again, when you make a trade like what the Texans did with Jadevian Clowney, it isn't always as bad as it may seem, not always as great as it may seem, but certainly at least through the first three games – with Whitney Merciless doing what he's been doing, it at least from my way of thinking, it's been better than I expected with Clowney being out and being gone. Maybe Texans fans don't care, Stephen, but I mean, is Clowney going to be happy at the end of the year re-signing with the Seahawks if they're not playing him more than 64% of the time? Yeah, probably not. He wants to get in there and play. I mean, this is a big year for him. This is a contract year, so he wants to showcase his talent. So, yeah, he probably wouldn't if that trend continues. But that, that is an interesting snap. Uh, 64% is all he's getting. I'm, I'm thinking that's got to change before the year's up, though. You mentioned J.J. Uh, Watt, and he was in double-digit quarterback hurries this week, which is the most uh, between – since 2014, quarterback hurries, J.J. Watt – is number one, and it's not really a close second, uh, which is pretty extraordinary considering J.J. Watt's injuries and all the time he's missed over the last five years. That's pretty impressive, but even more impressive from the defensive line, for the second week in a row, D.J. Reader and Charles Amenehu finished as pro football focus's highest-graded Texans players. 
Uh, Reader at 86.7 out of 100. Amenahu, 80.8. Overall, this is the top five graded interior defensive lineman in the entire NFL after three weeks. Number one, Calais Campbell. Number two, Charles Amenahu. Number three, Aaron Donald. Number four, Grady Jarrett. Number five, DJ Reader. How about that? Well, I'll tell you what, Omenihue has definitely been the surprise for me for the defense. I mean, I really wasn't expecting him to play very much, except maybe maybe on run defense, perhaps. But and, and remember, he didn't even play the first week against the Saints. He was a scratch, a healthy scratch. Yeah, he's kicked Carlos Watkins to the curb. Pretty much. In these last two games, I mean, he has showed why the Texans were high on him. But I, I think even for me, he's exceeded those expectations. And wow, he's ahead of Aaron Donald. That's really saying something. I know it's only three games, but, you know, you got to start somewhere, right? I got some more interesting stuff because Jordan Akins is sixth in the NFL in average separation, which is an interesting stat. It it basically measures the distance between a wide receiver, tight end, and the nearest defender at the time of catch or incompletion. This guy's getting open. He's third in the NFL in yards after catch, that's pretty good for Jordan Akins. Well, I think we knew after last year how capable he was of catching the ball. And I was glad to see that the tight ends are getting more involved, especially in the Chargers game, because that's just yet another weapon that Bill O'Brien and Tim Kelly and Deshaun Watson have at their disposal. And Jordan Akins, with his pass-catching ability, uh, wow, I, I just the, the offense can only get better from here. Interesting to see what's going to happen if and when Jordan Thomas gets back and or Kahele Waring gets back because Fells and Jordan Akins are doing a nice job out there. And Fells is giving you something that you haven't had with the Texans. Well, Fedorowitz kind of gave it to you, but somebody that can block as a tight end is nice to have. Now, here's another interesting stat. The Texans uh, having so many offensive weapons has really helped Carlos Hyde. Now, Hyde rushed into a loaded box, which means eight or more defenders in 2.5%, 2.5% of his carries. Go back to last year, and you find that Lamar Miller rushed into a loaded box, Stephen, almost 25% of the time. Wow. Hide the ride. That's kind of what I've called him. And, you know, he's really been the story of the backfield more so than Duke Johnson. Duke Johnson's contributed, but uh, Carlos Hyde has definitely been the man. No, he didn't have quite the numbers that he had in the first two games, but uh, so far he has definitely been the catalyst for the Texans' running game, and that's good to see. I love seeing Duke Johnson get it getting out into space, but you know this this stat just tells you that Carlos Hyde is getting more room to run than Lamar Miller did because they are scared of Kenny Stills and they're scared of Will Fuller. And they're scared of Jordan Akins. And, and all of that's starting to account for the fact that he's got some space to work with and to run with. Now, uh, I mentioned the Jonathan Joseph concerns in the postgame, Stephen. And, and I'll just say this, and I don't know if the Texans would even consider this. I don't know if this is like a strike at Jonathan Joseph's ego. But if I were the Texans, I would consider putting him in the slot and making him the slot uh, defensive cornerback as opposed to uh, Roby, which they're using in the slot right now, because what that does is Jonathan Joseph's playing so far back on, on, on these like one and two wide receivers, these deep threats. 
And usually you don't have a deep threat in the slot. Kenny Stills can be a deep threat, but I think it's a little bit safer to have Joseph in the slot against those guys than it would be to have him against the one and two. And maybe that would help him. It's less snaps for him if he's just playing the slot and it, and, and nickel and dime coverage and he's not playing on first downs. And for somebody with you know his age, I don't know, it could help. Well, yeah, I was going to say the the less snaps playing in the slot might definitely help him. And if some of these other guys can continue to step up, you know, Roby's done a good job and uh, Lonnie Johnson Jr. still kind of getting acclimated. He's playing well in certain spots. So, you know, hey, it's either that or just just remember quick trigger bill. You know, if you don't measure up, he's had a tendency to move people out. I don't think they're going to let Jonathan Joseph go. But if he continues to get burned, uh, you might start seeing less playing time for him. And as I pointed out on the Texans uh, postgame podcast, you know, Philip Rivers was definitely looking at him in the second half. He was going to him quite a bit in that second half. So he obviously saw something that Jonathan Joseph was doing that he felt he could exploit. I didn't even think about this, but one of our former guests on Houston Sports Talk, Drew Doherty, everybody knows him, the host of Texans Extra Points, brought this up. And let's start looking towards... Next week, Stephen, because this Sunday will be the fourth time this year a Texans player will play against his brother. You want to take a guess at any of these, or do you want me to go through the list? There's this is four times already this year. Well, of course, we know uh, Derek and JJ. Yes, that's one. That was, that was this past week. I'm trying to think who the others are, so go ahead and go ahead and fill me in. Do you know who this week is? I saw it the other day, and I was just trying to think, and now I can't remember it. Yeah, Justin Reed is really excited about That's playing it. his brother. You know, he tweeted yeah. out after the game, no, I'll be fine. I am I, I can't wait till next week. And he he yeah. wants to play his brother, his older brother. Uh, the other two times it happened this year already, uh, you got to go back to the preseason. A.J. Moore versus C.J. Moore in the Lions right. preseason game. And then uh, Nick Martin versus Zach Martin in the Cowboys preseason game. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten about that one. And and there's some there's some other family connections because uh, Texans defensive back assistant coach DeAnton Lynn's father is of course Chargers head coach Anthony Lynn. Anthony Lynn. Yeah. Texans offensive coordinator Tim Kelly's brother is Titans offensive lineman Dennis Kelly. So that'll happen a couple of times this year. And then you've got Jacob Martin's brother, Josh. This is another time it could have happened against in the Saints game. His brother, Josh, went on IR with the Saints in late August, or we would have five already, five brother versus brother matchups. So pretty cool. Well, it is pretty cool. And, you know, to think that when these guys were growing up, uh, I think I even saw somewhere where, where J.J. Watt was pointing out, you know, when he and his brothers were growing up and they were playing in the yard, they would dream that just one of them might make it. And, heck, three of them have made it. So... Yeah, it's really cool to see the family connections and how they when they especially when they play against each other. You know, if you're the parents, then you've got the tough choice of okay, who do I root for? <laughs> so that's always an interesting storyline to think about. You know, we're gonna get to Derek King in a little bit, but there was a quarterback that uh played under Derek King and he he couldn't get on the field because of Derek King. And uh do you know who that guy I'm talking about is? <laughs> <laughs> Are we talking about Kyle Allen? That's the Texans' opponent this week. Yeah, that's right. He is going to play instead of Cam Newton. So he couldn't get on the field barely at all in college because he kept getting beat out by other guys, and now he's the starter in the Carolina Panthers. Yeah, he couldn't. He couldn't beat out Kyler Murray because you know he, he's a former Aggie, so he transferred to Houston, and 
And then he had a kind of a rough go with Houston. I think he threw like four interceptions. Uh, and then Derek King comes in and, you know, see you later, Kyle Allen. So, yeah, and it's interesting because he, he declared early for the draft and then he wasn't drafted. But so far is certainly uh, making an impact with uh, the Panthers, especially with Cam Newton being down. Did he did he impress you at all when he was playing for the Aggies? What did you think when he was playing for the Aggies? Did you see him much? I really didn't see a whole lot of him. And, you know, he I think he showed some flashes. But, yeah, once Kyler Murray got in there and, of course, you know, Kyler Murray ended up transferring. That was that was kind of a weird deal with all the, the Kevin Sumlin transfers at A&M. I think that's what got him as much on the hot seat as anything else. And Kyle Allen, of course, was part of that. Yeah, it's it's a crazy path that he's taken to the NFL. You know, he's just you just don't see this uh, very often where a guy the guy doesn't start much. I mean, it's happened at USC a, a few times, but. I mean, how, what do you feel about this game? Do you, do you like the Texans' chances? It, I mean, it looks good on paper that you're facing Kyle Allen. You go, oh, he had four touchdowns last week. He was fantastic. But, you know, that, that that's, uh, you know, against not the best defense in the world. I think, what was he playing, the Cardinals or something he like that? He was playing Arizona, when you know, 144.4 quarterback rating. Yeah, it was against an Arizona team. Well, you know, if the, the defense showed that they can be intense. And one other thing, Robert, I want to point out about the defense – before we get to this upcoming game, is we've talked a lot about how well they played against the Chargers, but also they stopped a final drive, something that they've had trouble doing. So that's yet another feather in the cap of the defense. Well, they need to play with that same kind of intensity that they did this past week so that we don't, they don't run the risk of having someone like a Kyle Allen come back and beat them. Now, he's more of a pocket passer you know, Cam Newton has been known to run when he's been healthy. So Kyle Allen may not necessarily be taking off. He'll be more in the pocket, but the Texans still have to be ready for whatever he's going to bring. I feel like the Texans maybe gotten it together. You never know. They've played so many one score games. So I'm going to say they're going to win, but it's not going to be big. I mean, the Texans don't win a lot of big games, especially in the last year and a half. And Bill O'Brien always seems to ge- keep games close. I mean, you got to go back to probably Deshaun's uh, first season and a couple of those games where he ha- he did have some blowouts when Deshaun was just rolling. But, I mean, the Texans just don't play in many blowouts these days. No, they really don't. And I think that's that's what you can expect with this game. Another close game. You know, on paper, it should you should think that the Texans would win by, say, 10 14 points, but it's not likely to happen. We're probably going to all have to have physicals before the season is over with the nail biters that the Texans seem to get into. But yeah, I do think it will be a close game, though, against the Panthers, even with Cam Newton not playing. Texans favored by four. Does that seem about right? Yeah, I'd say four. I was I was thinking three, but yeah, I'd say four is about right. Rockets made some news. They signed one of Russell Westbrook and James Harden's old teammates, Thabo Savalosha, to a one-year vet minimum contract. The six-seven swingman is now 35 years old. He's a career 35% shooter from three-point range, which is good. He's the classic 3-and-D guy. He shot over 43% with Utah last year, just 12 minutes a game. But what do you think, Stephen? I like it. Well, I like it, especially from a defensive standpoint. And yeah, he's he's only twelve minutes uh, twelve minutes a game or so, so there to fill minutes. And uh, you know, you've got Tyson Chandler in there, and of course Clint Capella. So you know, and then the forward spot with uh, 
with Cephalosha. So I think the Rockets are, are making the right moves, and this would be more from a defensive standpoint, not so much from a scoring. I think he averaged over three points a game last year. So, no, I like the signing. I, I think, you know, it doesn't wow me or excite me, but I do think it's a good move. Yeah, and I don't even know if he's in the rotation to start with, but you need veterans to be able to come in if there's some sort of injuries or something like that. I like the fact this year that the Rockets have built a bench and they've built the other guys out, unlike last year, that fit what they do and you feel like they're not having to you know, go out in the buyout market because the buyout market is going to be tough this year because so many teams are contenders. And do you want to go play with the Rockets or do you want to go play with Paul George and Kawhi? Do you want to play with Anthony Davis and LeBron with the Lakers? And, you know, there's going to be spots in that rotation because we know that rotation is kind of crummy. You know, the Golden State Warriors maybe even because that their rotation is terrible after the top five. So there, there are good places that you can land if you're a buyout candidate so I think it's good that the Rockets did this early, did this before, you know, it got to be an emergency in, in January or February. Yeah, and they've certainly loaded up on the veterans. Uh, they, they've got a lot of veterans on the roster. Of course, you have P.J. Tucker, and then uh, they just signed Cephalosha. They re-signed Nene, Tyson Chandler. I mean, all these guys, they've been around a while. They're, they're getting a little old, but they have the experience, and they could possibly contribute in one way or another, even on a small scale, over a long season, and uh, wow, training camp is just days away. Can you imagine? Can you believe that? Yeah, and a couple of interesting facts also about Cephalosha that people may have either forgotten or didn't know. Just like Clint Capella, he was born in Switzerland, and a newspaper in Switzerland named him the best Swiss basketball player of all time a few years ago. Then there's this story from 2015. He and his then Atlanta Hawks teammate, Paro Antic, um, I hope I get that name right, it's Paro Antic, were arrested outside a nightclub in New York City for allegedly interfering with police after the Pacers' Chris Copeland was stabbed in the abdomen after an argument. During the altercation, NYPD officers broke Cephalosha's right leg, ending his basketball season. I don't know if people remember that, but he had surgery repair, a fractured tibia, and ligament damage. He refused a no-plea bargain that the prosecutor had offered him, even though his attorney wanted him to take it. Cephalosha decided to take the case to trial. Meanwhile, they dropped the charges against Antic. After that, the jury found Dabo not guilty, not guilty of all charges. Cephalosha sued the city of New York and eight police officers for $50 million dollars. Two years ago, he settled with the NYPD for $4 million and donated a substantial portion of that to Gideon's Promise, a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating public defenders. Uh, so that was really nice of him. I'm not sure how many Rockets fans would even remember that story. I think I vaguely remember the incident, though I don't remember the broken leg situation, though. I think I, I'd forgotten about that. But yeah, I think I vaguely remember hearing about the arrest and the whole incident back then, but wow, yeah, that's quite a story. And uh, now in Cephalosha, he's he's still playing. So Rockets are, I think, are very fortunate to have a guy like him on the team. Yeah, another thing I, I didn't know. Well, I knew that that I knew the whole story there, but another thing that was kind of a surprise to probably a lot of Rockets fans might not have heard this story. But Cephalosha, he saved a woman from drowning while he and his family were on a rafting trip down the uh, Provo River. I do remember that. You do remember that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Story goes that 
Lori Clark, a woman, was floating on the river with friends and their children when her tube capsized. He and his family, Cephalosha and his family, just happened to be floating nearby. Thabo lifted her into the raft. Cephalosha didn't really tell anybody about it. And according to Lori Clark, he really did save my life that day, quote unquote. She said he told her he'd recently moved from Atlanta to Utah for work. They exchanged phone numbers so Thabo could check on how she was recovering. Clark said, quote, when I asked him where he worked, he just said he worked for the Jazz, not that he played for them. Uh, <laughs> I kind of figured he was a player because his feet were so big. Yeah, kind of a dead giveaway there, Tabo. <laughs> I think most people could probably guess that you must be some kind of a player with with your size and those big feet. So Yeah, it seems like he's a good guy, and, and this is somebody that I'm sure Russell and James were really pitching hard to Daryl Morey, like, we need to get this guy – we love playing with him. You know, again, he's 35, but uh, a few minutes is all you're asking for. And I think he can give you that. And and he can give you that locker room presence like we talked about. But that's that's the main Rockets news as we head into camp. But uh, the Cougars had a weird story, weird news from U of H football yesterday. And quarterback Derek King and wide receiver Keith Corbin plan to redshirt this season, return to the program next year. They can do this because a new rule allows uh, allows for a player to appear in a maximum four games and still retain a year of eligibility. So they've played their max of four, and both of those guys are going to redshirt the rest of the season. And basically, hey, things aren't going well. We're going to take a break this year, and we're going to come back with the teams a little bit better because it is a young team. Uh, you, you look at it, Steve, it is a young team. Yes, it is. And the thing is, he can come back next year, have a, a year of Dana Hogerson's system under his belt, kind of look at it a little bit more, and those those players that will return next year, then the Cougars should be poised to at least make some kind of a run. I, I don't certainly don't know they're going to be in the CFP but at least do better than what they've been doing this year. So I think it, it may even be a trend that you might see more that players, instead of just transferring out of a school, maybe just taking that redshirt year, learning the new system, and then coming back stronger and hopefully the team be stronger next year. Yeah, you get an extra four games of experience. And everybody says, well, the NCAA, now it's this thing's out in the open and people aren't going to like it or whatever. I mean, when you pass that rule – if you're the NCAA, you knew how it could be used. You knew the potential of what could happen. So I don't know if they're just necessarily going to see this and go, oh, they're abusing this rule and we don't like it or whatever. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think the NCAA goes with this. And the other thing the NCAA likes is, you know, they like the quote unquote, the student athlete thing, Stephen. And this means more guys probably graduate because they're redshirting. Well, and really, that should be the most important thing that these guys graduate, that they get their degree and that it helps them do that. and But just remember, this is the NCAA we're talking about, so they're about as unpredictable as the weather in Houston. So they may decide, oh, everybody's getting a little bit too out of hand with this rule. We need to alter it a little bit, but hopefully not. I mean, they need to get out of the dark ages and into the 21st century. Come on. Did you see the other thing that's kind of going on with the NCAA these days? With a bill in California? Yeah, the bill in California. What, yeah. what do you think about that? These athletes need to be better taken care of. They need to be treated as students as much as treated like athletes. I've, I've never been really thinking about paying athletes per se to play their sports because if you get into that, yeah, you you know, the teams may have enough revenue to pay, say, 
football and basketball players. But what about baseball? You know, what about track and field? What about swimming? I mean, those those sports are low revenue sports. Yeah, yeah. How are you going to pay those athletes? But I want to address that. I want to address that. But but let's just I'm going to remind people that okay. So this bill basically working its way through the California legislature this month would allow student athletes at universities in the state to profit off their use of their name and their likeness. And and I think that's, what's going to happen. I, I, this has opened up the can of worms and two other States have taken steps to pass similar laws in recent days. And here's the reason why this is going to, I think this whole thing's going to blow up. And, you know, I, I hear what you're saying about the other sports and whatever, but here's where we're going to get into a big issue, Stephen. And this is what I wanted to bring up. This is where you're going to have a problem. Uh, we're starting to see where colleges around the country are basically saying tuition is free if your family doesn't make this much a year. And there's a lot of this stuff where tuition is going to start being free at a lot of these state schools. It, it's, it just happened at Texas, I believe. It, you do remember what I'm talking about? I think it's like 65000 a year or less, and, and you have free tuition at Texas Yeah, now? something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, I, and I know something similar, I think, was going on at maybe Illinois, uh, my, my school in Missouri, they're doing some stuff. So that's going to happen, I think, more and more. And then I'll, we're also, you know, it's, it's a, a good possibility that we're going to start seeing, you know, more federal laws that, I mean not to get in too much into politics, but it, it's very possible that we're going in this direction where college is going to become, tuition is going to become more free. Well, if tuition is free, Stephen, or if we're getting more and more towards that, then this idea of, you know, the NCA has always said this, the people that, you know, the Tim Tebow's, which, you know, what I just thought it was ridiculous what he said, but this idea that, well, they're getting a free education and they're getting this and then they're getting that. Well, it, it's going to turn out maybe if everybody gets a free education, uh, then it's not such a big deal that players get a free education or free, you know, room and board or whatever. It's not going to be as, as big of a deal. So I think you've got to figure out a way to just say, well, players can go out and and they can make money off of their likeness. They can make money selling autographs. You know, however you want to do it. I don't know how you actually pay them a more, you know, some sort of stipend. That gets, that's what I was referring it, to. It gets yeah. it gets really yeah. hairy, uh, but it's possible. It's possible we're headed that way. I mean, come on. I mean, if if everybody's getting free, then what's you know, you because these guys are working way harder than you know students. We know this. I mean, it's just like they're. They're, they've got all this stuff. There are all this. There are all these things also to prevent them, Stephen, as you know, from taking jobs, you know, because they're, right. they're worried about alumni paying them. And why does it matter if they're to, if they're already at the school? I mean, it's one thing if you're recruiting them with that. But once you're at the school, what does it matter if an alumni offers you a summertime job and things like that? And the coach can't even buy a player a meal or a plane ticket to go home. I mean, these are the kind of things. I think it's it's because of the NCAA's stubbornness and refusal to look at these issues that these states are finally getting into the game themselves and saying, well, if you're not going to do it, we're going to do something about it for you. And that's what's happening here. And I think these athletes should make money off of their likeness, autographs, things like that. Maybe even endorse. I mean, think about how much money the schools make off these guys, especially in football and basketball. Why shouldn't they get a portion of that? Yeah, I mean, I, I did a 
paper, I think, in college, you know, years ago about this, you know, corruption in college sports. And I mean, I mean, this is not news. We know this has been going on. But the whole idea of that you're going to that anybody has stopped any of this. I mean, it's all a bunch of I mean, we're seeing they're going after Kansas now for stuff and these NCAA violations left and right. But. You know, the NCAs, the, their legs have sort of been chopped out from under them with, you know, what's happened in the NBA and guys coming out early. That doesn't work anymore. You know, that sort of uh, way, oh, we're going to keep guys in college, but we're not going to pay them. Well, you can't, you can't do that. And the, and the NBA, I think pretty soon is going to make it. They're going to, again, go with, you can go to the NBA out of high school. Uh, they might change the rules around to make it a little bit more beneficial for the NBA owners to deal with kids coming out from high school. But I think we're going back in that direction for sure. And with college football, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I The writing's on the wall. The gig's up. The, the rules are going to start either changing or, you know, you're going to have a major pushback from college players. Uh, I, I'm surprised it hadn't happened to this point with social media. We almost saw it with Northwestern and a union and all that sort of stuff. But it's in it's inevitable. I mean, it's it's going to change soon. No, oh, it absolutely is. And I've, I've even seen things where the, it says the NCAA is threatening to not recognize or cut ties with California teams. And it's, I mean, come on, really? Again, it's their own stubborn refusal to deal with these issues that have been going on for decades, Robert. I mean, they, we this is definitely not the first time that we've addressed the situation of athletes getting paid or athletes being taken care of, that the rules are too strict. So again, you know, the the states are going to force the NCAA's hand and it's already starting in California and several other states going to follow suit. So I, I'm happy to see it. I'm, I'm glad that somebody is finally getting off their duff and getting in the game and not backing down when the NCAA is trying to flex their muscles. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been a lot more about the states taking stuff into their own hands about a lot of different things these days, which is pretty interesting. And I think they, they realized the, their power a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see how this whole thing's going to play out. Looking forward to the Texans again on Sunday. I mean, I, I it's, I don't know about you, Steven, it, 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 I am a little bit excited about watching this team. They are an exciting team to watch. Well, I'll tell you what, compared to when they started training camp, remember what I told you on our podcast when they're starting training camp that I just couldn't get all excited about the Texans. I just didn't think they had a lot to look forward to. Boy, was I wrong. At least for the first three games, they're two and one. And they're playing exciting football. Even the game they lost came down to the final play. So, yeah, I'm, I'm getting a, look, a bit excited, too, looking forward to the game this Sunday. They're, they're going to have the next two at home. So the fans are going to get to see them play. So, yeah, can't wait to see the Texans and uh, the Panthers game. Hopefully it'll be another great game. And the Astros preseason is almost over with. It feels like we've been waiting yeah. for like six months for the postseason to start. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely eager for it to start just with – with all the questions, you know, they'll finally be answered by the end of this week. You know, and into next week, we'll know who the Astros are going to play. And it'll finally be uh, an exciting time of year for baseball. So, and the Rockets are starting up. So, a lot to look forward to. Yeah, and, and the questions aren't going to end at the end of this week because the questions are going to be, okay, uh, is Wade Miley going to make the roster? Uh, who's going to be in the bullpen? Is Roberto, Roberto Osuna uh, is, is he going to be the, the Ken Giles of 2017 or is he going to show up in the postseason? So, uh, yeah, there, there, there's some questions that we're going to figure out in the postseason as well for the Astros as this thing goes along. Well, that's right. But at least we have things to look forward to. And 
We'll be talking about it all right here. Yeah, great time. As I keep saying, it is a great time to be a Houston sports fan right now. So we'll talk to you again in a few days with the Texans postgame show. Haven't done a ton of guests. If you want to hear more guests or you feel like ah, I miss somebody or whatever, drop me a line, info at HoustonSportsTalk.net, or you can drop the line on Twitter or Facebook. It's at HST Podcast on Twitter. You guys know it. It's in the show description every single week. So would love to hear from you. Want to know what you think of the show, uh, You know what we're doing, what you want to hear, whatever. We love your suggestions. But until next, uh, well, this coming Sunday, we'll talk to you again then about the Texans. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Ah!